This is Synthetic A Priori, Episode 9. Today I want to try to talk about something that came up in the Christopher Alexander lecture. One of the hard things about dealing with Alexander is is that there's a there's a basic concept of quality called life. Uh, actually, originally, in his earlier works, he didn't even have a word for this. He, he, he called it the quality without a name, which should give some indication of how difficult this thing is to deal with. <laughs> and, uh, and then in later works, uh, especially in the nature of order and onward, uh, he did name this quality and he, he, he sometimes called it life or a living quality and uh, and sometimes he called it wholeness and this was a quality to be found in objects and this was a question of whether an object an object here is taken very broadly to mean a salt shaker a, a doorknob a chair a, a house or or a downtown district um, any of these things could somehow be ranked in terms of its objective quality and the, this character of objective quality that he was interested in he called life when i put this live stream lecture together to to try and give a primer on alexander's work i intended as much as possible to to really uh stay very close to the terms that he used and the definitions that he used in order to give a kind of honest summary rather than some kind of reinterpretation to the extent that that's possible. The one area where I felt like I couldn't avoid uh, introducing a little bit of an innovation um, was when it came to explaining this idea of life because I wasn't satisfied I wasn't satisfied with the way that I've understood it to be explained. Um, and I believe that all the connections are already kind of implicit in his work to get there. And there's there's so much in his work that my guess is that he just kind of chose other things to focus more on rather than trying to kind of factor out or decompose or partition the definition of life and, and and build it and try and build it axiomatically out of other ideas. And it may even have been, you know, looking at, at, at some of the talks that he's given, listening to some of the talks that he's given, it may even be that the very project of trying to construct a definition of life as he intends it to be used out of some kind of axiomatic foundation goes against the very spirit of the thing. There's a, there's a talk that he gives where he gives the example of uh, a building project that was proposed by some developers in, in Berkeley. And folks who lived in the neighborhood showed up to protest this building. And the, 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 the underlying issue was that it was an ugly thing. <laughs> and uh, But it seemed that no one felt like it was reasonable to, to say, 
we think that this thing is ugly and it's not harmonious and, and it makes us feel bad when we look at it. And so what, what did they do? Instead, they said, well, this seems to be a violation of the, it's not accessible and, and it doesn't meet this and that uh, parking requirement and it might create a traffic problem and all kinds of things that kind of had the, the tone and structure of objectivity uh, and they, they skirted the actual issue which was a, 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 in his words, he's he sometimes used the term childlike evaluation of what do, what what do I like to see and what makes me feel good, right? And and maybe I just don't like the way that I feel when I look at this thing. So a lot of a lot of his work, his later work, was about trying to direct people back inward to this almost quote-unquote childlike evaluation and and not childlike in the sense of being um, immature or or lacking in its capability childlike in the sense of its honesty and directness I think was his intention nonetheless I didn't feel like this was something that we could use as a kind of bridge from his whole body of work uh, into something that that working designers could put into place, it didn't quite have. It doesn't quite have the um, the ro- the the robust kind of interlinking of concepts that everything else has. And I wondered, you know, is there some way to relate this concept of life, this 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 good thing? that we say we find in a design that works, uh, is it possible to kind of trace that back to some of the more fundamental ideas like form and context and fitness or or um, how does this relate to, for example, his theory of centers? Centers being some area of coherent structure in a field of structure, right? What are the areas that stand out as being coherent The thing that I ended up trying to do that seemed to sort of work uh, is to is to look at life not as a direct quality of the geometry, which is something that I, I, I believe I see him doing in some of the later books. Uh, and it's something that for sure some of the other folks in 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 um in whatever this sort of school of thought that kind of um, this halo around him of of this uh, other people who are working on the same problems, you'll see folks like Nikos Salangeros looking strictly at the geometry and then looking at at things like level of scale and the relationship among local symmetries at different levels of the scale and then trying to kind of compute life, a measure of life. From this, and the thing is that it's it's partially successful. Uh, you can you can take some buildings that 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 clearly have this property, and then run this math on them, and you get a number that seems to separate them out from the ones that don't. But this to me is very suspicious. Even though I like the project, it's suspicious because it seems to me correlative and cross-sectional in a way that that um, we we've talked about on the show before. Uh, it doesn't seem to be causal and longitudinal. It doesn't seem to be saying this thing is alive because 
this or that is happening in it. Um, the thing that I landed on was, it seems that uh, the 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 living structure, and in the in the lecture I gave the example of of a, a kind of Soviet style building versus uh, a courtyard that Alexander had designed that was full of a great variety of little kind of different uh, levels of structure and different nooks and, and benches and an arcade and different areas where the sun was 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 landing and areas that were in shadow and and there was there was a lot going on there and it was all very harmonious and there was this notion that the the Soviet building lacked life and the courtyard with this arcade and and the different levels of structure embedded in it somehow had life and if we tried to define this purely geometrically i don't actually think we could get there and i also don't believe that if we were working on some kind of a design project and we tried to copy the geometry of something that's living and say we are going to introduce more levels of scale here and we're going to introduce better shape and we are going to add some alternating repetition or stronger boundaries or whatever these 15 properties are that Alexander has listed. Um, I don't think that we could just put those into place and say, look, I checked off the box. I am making something that looks living. Therefore, it is living. So in order to sort of deal with this, I thought we would try something else. And it seemed to work in the lecture, which was to define... Uh, living structure, again, like in his terminology. So, of course, we're not talking about, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat again here, that we're not talking about, you know, plants and animals versus rocks. We're, we're talking about a, a quality of a successful built structure that um, this, this living structure is living not because, not, not necessarily because of its geometry or it's the spatial relationships of the elements in its design. It's living because of what it affords. That is, it's living if life can take place there. So if you have something like a barren parking lot, very little of interest happens. I mean, and then you, you look at a, at a, a, a good, a good dense human scaled old fashioned urban center like in Central Europe or, or in some places in Japan, um, you'll see that there's all kinds of things happening there. And uh, people are naturally kind of going there and doing things. And so there's this sense that, oh, and let's also pull out one other thing. So that, 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 that description just now of different amounts of activity that are taking place according to what the built form affords uh, this seems to also be happening on both outer and inner levels. And I also mentioned this in the lecture that there's a kind of outer level of, um, you know, do people go into that room in the house and do, 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 do meaningful activities take place in that space on the basis of how it's put together or do people avoid it? That's a very practical outer way of looking at this. There, there seems to also be a kind of inner level, which is to what extent do you approach, let's say, an artwork? And when you approach that artwork, what do your eyes do? What does it do to your feeling? 
does it does it create some kind of um, uh, cognitive movement or some kind of semantic movement or some kind of emotional movement? I'm not quite sure what the right framing is, but I think we can also distinguish between uh, walking up to a blank, let's say some kind of a something like a Le Corbusier-like building, like some totally blank structure, and 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 you you can there there have been eye tracking studies that show how the eye is 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 it doesn't find anything to latch onto and runs away and finds a tree to look at versus if you have some kind of uh you look at a beautiful uh, uh, uh some kind of building in, in, a, in a more traditional vernacular then you'll see that that the eye looks at the front door and it looks at the at the slightly tall windows that appear on either side of the front door and it traces the thick boundaries of the windows and the good shape of the pitched roof and then you know, down to the bushes that are around the entryway and the path leading up and so on, that there's a lot of places that the eye naturally likes to roam. And this is maybe another kind of activity that happens on the basis of that form. What this reminds me of is the discussions that that we've had about the so-called screwdriver problem from Stuart Kaufman, uh, where you have the question is, what is a screwdriver good for, right? There's some simple to describe fixed form of this thing lying on the lying on the table, um, but actually the circumstances where you could reach for it and and then and then act with it are not as easy to describe because they are somehow a function of the relationship between that form and different contexts, that different dynamic contexts that might call for that form. This is what in, I mean, let's, why not? Let's just hop around here a little bit here. This is what in job to be done language we call a hire. Yeah, a hire is where the, the, the demand side is some kind of a uh, functional process that is taking place um, kind of in the human situation of something where, where, where something isn't right or something needs to change. And then there's some supply sitting there, which is like that which one could use as a method to change the circumstance. So in this case, the screwdriver. And then the hire is, is reaching for the screwdriver and using that supply and putting it into the demand context to um, realize some new outcome. This, it, it, we start to find ourselves in a in a in an interesting kind of um, what do you say like constellation of of, of of very closely related ideas that that I find very juicy, uh, and there's one other idea that seems to be relevant here, and that is uh, Husserl's. He has something called. And I don't even, I've never heard it pronounced. And I, I honestly tried. I searched YouTube to see if anyone was talking about it. Apparently it's not even popular enough for some tiny niche video on YouTube to appear on it. So I'm sorry. It's the, 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 the term is fundierung. And it means um, something like, it's a kind of relation. You know, Husserl being a philosopher and being a very kind of a bit mathematically minded, quite rigorous philosopher was trying to describe a very particular kind of relation. And I, I could never penetrate 
the the primary sources of his work. I couldn't I couldn't go read logical investigations and get anything out of it, but I did manage to get quite a bit out of different types of second dairy sources or people who were who 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 supposedly understood what he was saying and commented on it. And one of my favorite is a paper um, from 1989 uh, that appeared in the Monist, which is like a, apparently it looks like a legitimate philosophical journal. Not that that matters. I actually found it in a in a compilation of papers that were all authored by the author of the paper, Giancarlo Rota, and Rota uh, was a um, was a philosopher but also a mathematician and worked at the intersection of these two. And he wrote a paper that appeared in this in this compila- compilation um, of uh, this... I don't remember the name of the book. I think it was something like The Star and the Hole or something like that, which is a very nice book. And he, I found him very interesting. And um, he... The, the, the paper is called Fundierung as a Logical Concept. And this is an amazing claim. He actually says that... We have such logical primitives as something like, you know, implication. You know, if A happens, then it means B should also happen. Or negation, the opposite, right? Uh, We have these fundamental logical relationships. And he said, Fundierung belongs among these. And so what is it? Fundierung is this relationship where you have um, two things, function and facticity. And what he means by these terms is that there's a kind of underlying something that um, that enables something else to happen uh, uh, based on that. And an example of that is um, uh, the the meaning of a text is not in the text. You know, like you you have to read a text, and then when you read a text, you have some meaning that you kind of get out of it. Right, and we can distinguish between the text and the meaning. For example, because different people will read the same text, but they will arrive at different understandings of what they read. Right. So logically, we have to say these things are not the same. And then, if we try to explain the two, we cannot reduce the meaning of the text to the text itself. And so, in this case, the text is the facticity, and the meaning is the function. And it, the the relation between the two is this so-called fundierung relationship, which is hasn't apparently found a good translation. The closest, I think, the one that 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 Rota suggested was something like founding or being founded by the notion that the meaning of the text is founded by the text. Um, I, I I actually think that we can just. Um, draw a link here to to J.J. Gibson and say, look, this is this is an affordance relationship. And maybe uh, those paths just didn't cross because it seems actually straightforward to draw that connection. To say that the the screwdriver affords a great variety of activities, like, of course, like screwing a screw, but also, you know, uh, stabbing a hole in the wall or or throwing it and spearing a fish or... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, using it like a crowbar to like uh, lever something open, right? Or opening a paint can or, or whatever, right? There's a great variety of things that can take place that depend on the underlying form but aren't kind of in that form, right? They happen 
on the basis of that form. All of this uh, it ties back to this question of life with Alexander, where we could say it seems that there is a certain kind of harmonious relationship. There are certain types of um, structural features that we find again and again in designs that work well. These 15 properties that he lists, and these are these are in the nature of order book one, these 15 properties, like levels of scale, boundaries, alternating repetition, roughness, echoes, the void, things like that. And they sometimes they have a bit poetic sounding names, but they're actually completely practical. If you look at them, they're very practical descriptions of the things that we see again and again in well-designed form. It seems that uh, if we want something to work well, that these are things that we could consider to get to a to get to the functionality that we want, but that the actual functionality, if we were to try and say that the life is in the geometry, we would be committing this uh, reductive fallacy of 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 saying that the that the the function is the facticity when it's not. It's afforded by it right this goes even deeper if we want if we allow ourselves to, to go crazy here and he also you know pull in a little side note that uh Stuart Kaufman even even points out that the set of possible functions of a thing is not prestatable and this is an amazing thing <laughs> because the the form itself with the screwdriver is is a hundred percent definable you can you i mean okay you you, you cannot define uh, ultimately there is a level of analysis that you cannot reach you know there ultimately is no screwdriver there there's just a big arrangement of atoms and it could become quite time consuming to specify the exact quality of every single atom that makes a screwdriver but if at, at the right level of abstraction we can get to a satisfying place where we say look it has a handle and the handle has certain contours and then it has this um i actually don't know the there's i'm sure there's language for all these parts i don't know them but you know there's a kind of shaft and there's a kind of tip where this different types of uh um uh, uh heads can be inserted you know of different shapes um i uh, this this can be defined. This can be specified. And of course it can, because it can be manufactured, right? But then when we look at all the use cases for the screwdriver, yeah, okay, there are, of course are certain primary use cases that the thing was designed for. But those use cases are not finite. They're not bounded in some kind of a closed way. And this is such an interesting asymmetry. I think this is, for me, what is so exciting about doing design work is this is this asymmetry between I can make I can make a certain form, I can figure out how to put a few pieces together, and then out of that, a lot can happen. Even things that even things that I can't anticipate are going to happen. I think we could tie this 
if we want to come down to earth for a moment, I think we could tie this to some very practical concerns that come up when we're doing, for example, product development. We can say that uh, the this 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 very fancy sounding, you know, philosophical question of fundierung or or how is is function f- founded on facticity, or uh, how does a form afford different types of activities to take place on its basis? However, it is that we w- would might try to articulate this relationship. Uh, we can also bring it kind of into the garage, and we can say, "Look, what does the thing do?" And what it is is different than what it does. This is a I, I got those uh, terms from Bob Mesta. This is like a beautifully boiled down. Uh, you know, when you get monosyllabic, then you know that you've gotten to some some understanding of something, right? <laughs> what is it versus versus what does it do? And what's interesting here is that there is a kind of stack of is does in a product. You know, the on the basis of the backend implementation of a software product, for example, different types of interactions are possible. Those interactions themselves are um, relationship at the at the so-called human computer interface level, right? Like because this backend is there, we can offer a button, and I can click on the button, and it's going to tickle the backend in such a way that it spits out some kind of a response, and then the interface can display that response, right? So there we have two levels. The backend is affording certain types of interactions to take place on the front end. The front end is affording the perception of the possibilities of those interactions and 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 it's allowing those interactions to take place in terms of the I can see the button, I can click the button, and then some some readout appears that I can then see and and, and so on. The thing is that this description, I think, captures a lot of the uh, discussion that happens among design teams and among designers. Um, there's another level, which is given the back end and given the interactions that are possible, according to how this thing was made, what does it do? Like, what does it do for me? You know, what does it do in the world? What does it do that affects my life? This is, um, I think, the level where the questions that Alexander raises become applicable, become operational, become workable. I was going to say become important, but they're already important. It's like this is where they become, um, where we find ourselves at the level of abstraction, where this is our subject. What is it that should happen in the world that is meaningful or or interesting and i think this is 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 maybe it's maybe what he's talking about and if it's not what he's talking about well maybe it's just something new to talk about but i i do think that the overlap is 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 very strong that this this notion of life actually means you know, what do I do in my life? What do you do in your life? And and how, how do we spend our time? And what actions do we perform? 
and and do those actions increase the here we could talk about the wholeness or the the feeling of cohesion or the sense of meaning or the relatedness of the different things that are going on can we talk about that type of 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 harmony at the level of the afforded action of the afforded experience rather than at the level of the geometry you know rather at the, the, the not at the level of the built form and this is this is then very interesting you know and i think we can um i suggested we might be becoming practical and then i flew up again but let's come let's try to come down again for example we could make a piece of software and the intention of this software could be to enable someone to make a new kind of music i think in this example it's easy to see the levels you know there's there's a there's a front end that would enable someone to actually produce the music but that's not the music right but there is a dependence relationship there the things that you can do in the software determine the type of music you can produce there is a constraining relationship there but it doesn't reduce and then down a level from the from the interactions that are afforded by the software down to the 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 uh the computation that is afforded by the back end you know to the interaction layer right so i think we could kind of see those three layers pretty well in, in, in an example of a kind of artistic creative tool like that because there is an output that is clearly dependent on the software that's not the software that is a thing that's appreciated in the world as a thing that has its own standing uh I've been thinking about this in connection to Basecamp because, you know, we could we could make Basecamp's code more more um, workable as something that te technical people have to deal with when they make changes. There's a lot of pattern language stuff that was that was inspired by Christopher Alexander that's limited to this backend level. We could improve the interactions in the sense that we could maybe make the experience of actually operating and working with the software somehow more harmonious or more pleasant. But can we actually create a different life moment? It, it almost sounds cheesy or like too much, but, but like, why not, why not ask, you know, like people are, people are working in this tool all day. People really spend, you know, six hours a day looking at this thing. And are there things that could become possible that aren't possible today? And here's just one little example from, from a, a, a project idea I'm toying with. A base camp at present doesn't have a kind of uh, private space where you can just um, claim some work, like some tasks, and they just put them together in a place that no one else can see and no one else can screw up and no one else can touch. And, and the things as you check them off, they kind of stay there in a checked off state and you get to make some progress. Like, these are the 10 things I'm going to do. They're the right 10 things and nobody's going to mess me up and I'm not going to get distracted by anything. I'm just going to be here looking at these things. Yeah, this, this is an example of taking one of the 15 properties, boundaries, and 
Uh, and and but but we're what, what level of abstraction is this boundary exist in? You know, it's a boundary in the space of like what is shared information and what's not. You know, and and what do you see at the same time and what do you not? This is not so easy to define, but it's there. And and then at the and then we can go further and say, if if I have a private space that is just mine, where I can elect some work into there. And then I can work on it without distraction and feel like I'm making progress. Could I do anything to make that a better space where it's a different experience to be there? So could I put a photo of my family there? Could I put like a, like a framed rotating inspirational quote box? You know, people, people put this stuff on their desk and they do it for a reason. And if I'm in this space, Maybe all of the demands on the form um, don't just come from efficiency, productive, sort of industrial factory type of a way of thinking of like, how can I get the most to-dos done in the shortest period of time? There's probably an aspect to this of thinking, uh, how can I inspire myself so that when I have a bit of drudgery, that I can kind of increase the energy that I have to get through those tasks, right? And then how do I let the tasks accumulate in such a way that they show me the progress so I can feel a sense of accomplishment? Uh, this is, it's not changing the world. And, and you know, you at the end of the day, of course, you are just kind of uh, executing some tasks for some job, right? Um, but I think we can make the exact same claim uh, about building design. Should we just work in a concrete box? because we're just there to work? Or could we make it a place that makes you feel alive, that reminds you of things that are important to you and that, that supports you and, and helps you to sort of get through that? This can very easily become, I think, let's say, to be friendly, we could say resistant to analysis. <laughs> like this could just be something squishy and by being squishy, it could invite all kinds of, sorry, more or less BS, you know, because if something doesn't have a kind of clear structure around how to engage with it in terms of its logic or its function or its relation to other things, then one can kind of just say anything and it becomes difficult to, to, to have some sort of a control over what we're dealing with. I think that... Um, What's interesting about this notion of fundirung or equivalently the notion of afforded function on the basis of some form um, is that uh, we could we could really go into the garage you know to go build something and say, what are the activities and the dynamics that I'm trying to afford at a given level and do I know what level I'm talking about? And if we're at this level, which is not the back end, not the, not the interaction, but it's at the kind of human activity level, can I define that in such a way that it actually gives me meaningful requirements back a level down and back a level down? And when I can't do everything because I don't have unlimited time and energy, can I actually meaningfully talk about making trade-offs in that space? What are the things that we're going to put the time and effort in to make more harmonious or to, to enable to happen at one level. And what are the things that we're going to cut corners on because we can't do it all or 
there are limitations in the way the components of the system interface with each other. I don't think we have clear answers on, on this subject today, but I think maybe we've connected some dots across a good wide space that might open up some some good ideas into the future of how to deal with these things. And that's not bad. So let's call that an episode for today. You can find me on Twitter at RJS. My website is feltpresence.com. And check the show notes for references to the people and works that were mentioned in today's episode. We'll see you next time.